Welcome to Religious Studies News. I'm your host, Christian Peterson, and today I'm here with Cecile Fromont, Assistant Professor of Art History at the University of Chicago and winner of the Best First, First Book in the History of Religions Award. She's here to speak to us about her book, The Art of Conversion, Christian Visual Culture in the Kingdom of Congo, published by the University of North Carolina Press. Congratulations, Cecile, and thanks for joining me. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure. Now, uh, the book focuses on the Kingdom of Congo, which th was this uh, long uh, dynasty from the, the 15th to the 19th century, um, and what you call Congo Christianity. A lot of folks uh, might not be familiar with this, so do you think you could set the stage for our, our listeners in a sense? Um, what was the cultural context of your study? What do we need to know to understand a bit about Congo Christianity? Absolutely. Well, the Kingdom of Congo was one of many uh, kingdoms or, or polities organized around uh, a king figure in Central Africa that probably emerged in the 13th century. There is uh, ongoing archaeological um, uh, excavation and research uh, uh, going on to try to establish uh, that. And we do have uh, oral histories, too, that point to um, sometimes around that date. Um, and what happened uh, in the history of the kingdom that was really momentous and would you know, change the history of the region and also of the Atlantic world at large was the arrival of uh, Portuguese really explorers, adventurers, and then the priests that they brought um, with them uh, to the shores of Central Africa, just south of the mouth of the Congo River, uh, around uh, the 15, uh, sorry, the 1480s. And from that moment on, for a few decades, um, the inhabitants of the kingdom, uh, and in particular their rulers and uh, the social elite, um, became interested in um, the history of um, all the stories that were brought by the priest and the Portuguese. And in 1491, um, the King of Congo decided to um, accept baptism, uh, probably out of curiosity and uh, also um, as a way to have access to a new set of invisible forces that would, you know, give him a head um, against maybe his competitors um, uh, for a rulership in the Congo. And then for a couple decades, uh, the relationship between Portugal and the Congo is quite cordial. They uh, exchange um, ambassadors that, you know, by and large were also hostages um, um, that would spend time uh, in Lisbon for the Congolese and uh, in the capital of the Kingdom of Congo uh, for the Portuguese uh, men who stayed. And during this uh, first decade, um, uh, a prince uh, of the royal house who would become uh, King Afonso I of Congo becomes educated in both the local um, tradition and oral histories and uh, local mythology and in uh, the same uh, histories and uh, myth of uh, Catholicism uh, through the priest um, who had remained uh, at court. And in the first decades of the 16th century, when it comes time for um, 
choosing a new king after the death of um, uh, of that first uh, uh, Congo king who had uh, baptized to Christianity, a civil war uh, uh, ensues, and it was actually not um, something exceptional for uh, the Congo because the kings were chosen and not. Um, kind of decided through gene genealogical uh, descendants. And in that uh, civil war, the future Afonso um, fights against his heathen brothers, um, so the story will go. Um, and uh, at the verge of defeat, uh, St. James and a miraculous army of knights appears and helps him seize the crown of the Congo. And this is the moment in which what I call uh, Congo Christianity is being invented, um, not so much in the events, but in the ways in which uh, Afonso is able to strategically retell the story um, in a way that resonates both with Christian and in particular Iberian uh, uh, Christian history and on the other side, uh, uh, Central African mythology. And in both cases, you have uh, uh, um, a new prince uh, who wants to become the king, who is able to seize the crown um, with a miraculous intervention from otherworldly powers. Um, and thanks to that inaugural story, uh, the Kingdom of Congo becomes a part of Christendom in a way that is recognized by European um, uh, rulers and the Pope, importantly. Um, uh, externally and internally, uh, Christianity becomes one of the means through which uh, political legitimacy is being um, demonstrated by their rulers. So that's kind of the, the, the starting moment. And it will be one that uh, remains uh, really important through uh, the dramatic changes that would ensue in the next, uh, basically, four centuries of the history of the kingdom. Yeah, and it's a, it's a fascinating context, and you, you lay it out very carefully for us. You focus on Congo Christian visual culture. So can you talk a little bit about the aim of your book? Why examine the relationship between artistic forms and religious thought? How, how do we uh, understand Congo Christianity better through this? Yes. Well, the, um, the topic of Congo Christianity, in a way, has been approached um, probably since the, um, the earlier part of the 20th century from a variety of angles. Um, uh, missionary scholars uh, who uh, were working in uh, what had become at the time the Belgian Congo and also Angola, um, uh, and later uh, uh, more professional historians uh, would um, try to understand um, the scope and the nature of the use of Christianity and the presence of Christianity in the Congo. Um, but they would do it uh, principally through uh, written sources, uh, uh, which are numerous and really uh, e in an exceptional manner for uh, African um, region uh, in particular before uh, the late 19th century. So we do have thousands of pages of um, uh, correspondence between the kings of Congo and the papacy and different rulers of Europe, uh, some internal correspondence and also uh, European travelers and missionary descriptions. 
Um, but through the sources, um, it remained unclear, uh, it remained difficult uh, to uh, get to um, uh, the ways in which uh, the adoption of Christianity um, uh, really reshaped the uh, actual material and uh, everyday environment of the Congo. And what I was able to do as an art historian uh, was to go and look for um, the visual apparatus that came with the conversion uh, to Christianity. And so I started going through the you know, thousands of pages of written accounts to see if there were uh, images associated with them, from, for example, on the part of the uh, European travelers. And I was lucky enough to find um, uh, many of his images, some of which were known but had not really been discussed, and some of uh, some of which uh, had not been uh, published before. And also, I went back to um, uh, the museum and private collections uh, holding uh, Congo Christian artworks, such as crucifixes and saint figures, um, to bring together a corpus of works that would highlight the ways in which the people of the Congo themselves brought together the novelties brought about uh, by the new religion, but also um, the uh, material commercial networks of the Atlantic world, and brought them together and combined them with their own local practices in a way that really allow us to understand their vision of what Congo Christianity looked like for them and, and meant for them. So I spent quite a bit of time in the book thinking about uh, regalia and clothing um, because it's one of the um, uh, uh, areas in which you really see that careful and inward looking process of reflection on um, the part of the uh, uh, Congo people about you know bringing together uh, the new and the old, the foreign and the local uh, into uh, a novel expression of their new identity. Now, you look at a whole range of really unique source materials. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, this this broader archive that you've you've kind of collected and uh, examined? What what can we learn from some of these other pieces that you're looking at, and what might be some of the most striking that you you found in the archive? Uh, yes, no, I think, you know, the, the topic is, is quite a broad one um, uh, in a way and to really um, understand as fully as possible what happened, you know, so long ago and in a, in a region where um, the kind of the documentary um, record um, is of a different nature as uh, what we would have, for example, uh, for um, a European uh, European locations. You, I really sought to uh, bring together as many sources as possible to kind of fill in the gaps and understand uh, a little bit how uh, one type of document can uh, complete or affirm or challenge uh, another type of document so that you can get a fuller picture of, um, uh, of uh, what was uh, happening there. So for example, I use um, uh, uh, many uh, paintings that were created by um, 
uh, Italian uh, Franciscan missionaries uh, who were active in the region. And they're very much um, uh, 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 strongly authored images, right? They are uh, made uh, for a particular mission at a particular time from a European perspective. Um, and they are extremely precious because they give us a wealth of information and details about the Congo. But you certainly cannot take them at face value, right? You have to question uh, what they are showing how they're showing it and why they're showing it. Um, but if you start uh, looking at these images and going into um, the early collections um, of objects that came from Central Africa in cabinets of curiosity from the 17th and 18th century in Europe, and you start seeing some of the same objects, some of the same uh, uh, pieces of textiles, for example, then you start getting um, uh, a, a fuller and a more accurate picture of what is being represented and what um, the relationship really it had to uh, uh, what happened uh, on the ground. Now, one uh, section of the book you focus on uh, the cross uh, as a place of intersection in a way. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk about the role of crucifixes in Congo Christianity and um, the ways they uh, act as intermediaries in a sense? Yes. So the, the most emblematic object of Congo Christianity um, or the most com emblematic type of object uh, is the Congo crucifix. So uh, there are uh, a, a, a category of objects that were uh, rather well known, uh, and they appeared once in a while in publications and um, and exhibitions. Um, and when I started doing my uh, research for the dissertation and then uh, the book, there was some sense of maybe you know twenty of them that floated around and uh, that were known. Um, and so I started to. Um, go into collections and get a real uh, sense of how many of these objects existed and uh, whether or not there was a corpus there. And so I've been, you know, looking at it as systematically as possible. And then I found probably over 200 of them. Um, you know, not that they were unknown, but they hadn't been kind of centralized in one, um, in one database or, or list of objects. And once I had uh, this range of crucifixes that were both um, extremely diverse in their appearance. Some of them are fully brass, others are brass and wood. Um, some of them have a very profuse iconography with lots of elements uh, on them. Other, others are, are really simple. I actually um, was able to uh, see patterns and really uh, come up with um, a, a good sense of what these crucifixes uh, were doing. And uh, following up on that visual analysis and paying close attention to when and how they were mentioned in the written sources about the 16th, 17th and 18th century in the Congo, um, then I realized that the crucifixes were actually um, one of the key material and visual objects 
through which that combination of the local and the foreign, the Christian and the um, Central African, was being operated um, in a way that um, really had to do with a new formulation of um, the, the religious thought that came into um, uh, what became Congo Christianity. So basically, the, the sign of the cross was uh, a symbol that uh, was almost certainly of great import uh, to uh, Central African uh, cosmology before the advent of Christianity. And of course, as we know, um, uh, it is one of the central um, uh, symbols of Christianity uh, uh, itself. And when you look at the early moments of the encounter between the two religions, um, agreement about the existence of uh, invisible forces and about the ways in which these invisible forces are able to have an impact on the visible world uh, comes into um, a, a common look at cruciform objects. So there is the story of a miraculous apparition of a stone cross, there is the miraculous apparition of a, a, a cross uh, in the sky uh, at, uh, uh, at uh, a couple moments in the early history of Congo Christianity. Um, and then these uh, moments of agreements uh, become, uh, uh, as, as I you know, call it, correlated, right, into these objects that I, I call spaces of correlations that allow to bring together the two uh, religious um, uh, understanding, the two sets of uh, um, uh, religious thought into a single object that function very much in the same way that uh, the new foundation myth of the Kingdom of Congo uh, did, both in Christian terms and in Central African terms, so that the two stories become correlated, become part of the same uh, really a story from uh, going forward. So the narrative of the uh, uh, death and resurrection of Christ that comes from the Christian side of things uh, become part of the Central African uh, um, uh, religious worldview of a cyclical passage from uh, life to death. And the expression, the visual and material expression of one side becomes also uh, a valid visual and material expression of the other side. And these crucifixes are both the objects in which that um, correlation is operated and the objects that would continue to express and carry uh, that correlation uh, forward. Yeah, and this uh, spaces of correlation, you really uh, flesh this out throughout the book and uh, in, in other sections you look at the Congo Christian architectural landscape and performative activities and uh, you kind of uh, mentioned briefly this uh, clothing and regalia. Yeah. Um, just for, for lack of time, um, how do you imagine that others in the study of religion might benefit from your work either in um, applying some of your conclusions or uh, using some of your methods? Uh, what, what do you think uh, listeners might take away from your book? Yes, thank you for that question. I think you know, one of the m most um, hopeful uh, um, uh, uh, aspect of, of my work is um, to think about ways of talking about 
um, African material. And uh, in this case, uh, African Christianity, uh, not as an exception or uh, not uh, as um, something that is fully um, shaped by the terms of colonialism and post-colonialism, but one that you know existed before um, uh, before colonialism arose, uh, and we know it very well for uh, Ethiopia, for example. Right, it's the oldest uh, probably Christianity. Um, uh, uh, well, almost in the world, um, but in in the Congo, we have the opportunity to see or to think about the interactions between uh, Europeans and Africans uh, through a new lens, right? And um, the um, reason why I, I I turned to the idea of the space of correlation was to find ways of talking about cross cultural interactions. Um, without using the terms uh, such as hybridity or third space um, uh, or others um, that really emerged um, to talk about colonial and uh, anti-colonial movement in a moment that was that defined itself by you know the the post-colonial um, uh, environment um, so I hope it is a more uh, neutral term. I hope it is a term that is broader and more nimble in the way that it can be used. Um, and I'm, you know, really uh, uh, honored to, you know, enter into the broader conversation about you know, the history of African Christianity and uh, perhaps the history of Christianity as a whole. Well, Cecile, it's a it's a fabulous book. It's certainly deserving of the award. And I think uh, if listeners uh, pick it up and read through it. They they really will benefit from it and certainly enjoy it as, as well. It's a beautiful book too. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.